2: Hello and welcome to The Chat Returns, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham and I'm barking for more. (laughs) So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, welcome back to The Chat Returns. Your pun this week <laughs> made me giggle, uh, giving a little bit of a taste as to who our guest is this week. Would you like to expand on that?
0: Yeah, uh, I hope we've got some Shaun the Sheep fans uh, in the audience listening to this podcast, um, because today we're going to be talking to Peter Lord. And for us in the UK, uh, Peter's work with Aardman Animation is a, a store of our childhoods uh, and so much of how we just got into animation in the first place and our first experiences with it and as we know has a huge crossover with studio
2: ghibli as well absolutely since recording this interview with peter my uh, my toddler has become obsessed with morph which of course was one of Peter's, you know, co-creations back in the 70s and 80s. Um, So we've been watching so many old morph sketches because they're all up on YouTube now. It's an amazing channel if you just want to watch some really, really creative stop-motion animation with plasticine. But yeah, the connection between Ghibli and Aardman is really fascinating, isn't it? We know that Miyazaki in particular um, admires the work of Aardman, they put on an exhibition at the Ghibli Museum about Ardman's work. I think, uh, did we mention it in our Japan episodes? But when we were out there, the exhibition was almost a greatest hits of the Ghibli Museum, showing how they put together all the previous exhibitions they'd had there over the, over the years. And so we saw little sketches of what the Ardman exhibition looked like. Of course, we also saw... Um, in their project, projection booth where they have guests sign and do sketches. We saw sketches from Alden people there. But what was really fascinating was, Jake, when we went to places like Tower Records looking in the DVD section, the very, very expensive DVDs and Blu-rays they have out in there in Japan stretch a little bit beyond our budget. But we were looking at the Ghibli library, the section dedicated to Studio Ghibli. And within that, they have the Ghibli label of stuff they release in japan that is of course not ghibli related but they've acquired for release there and they released loads of Ardman. so we really wanted to uh, disentangle this uh, this relationship and see where it started and why not talk to the co-founder of the studio himself, Peter Lord.
0: Yeah, this was such a lovely conversation to have with Peter. Um, we got into so much of what you're talking about there, Michael, and just, just anything that takes us back to the museum, uh, particularly after a year of not being able to travel anywhere, feeling so nostalgic about that trip that we managed to sneak in just under the wire uh, in November of 2019. And that, that exhibition, it sounded like... Uh, that some of the one of the strangest kind of curatorial collaborations I feel like Miyazaki had his own idea of what an Aardman exhibition should be rather than Ardman talking about what their exhibition should be and uh, Peter going into that was uh, a lot of fun and uh, as well as this fantastic Peter Lord interview there is a lot of other exciting stuff happening in our podcast world So this series, The Chat Returns, expands into the summer. We're going to be doing even more of these episodes and we're having such a fantastic time doing them. Uh, We're having so much fun, in fact, that we're doing even more podcasts. Uh, We've got a bonus series called The Library Cafe, which is where we talk about all kinds of things that are not Studio Ghibli related. So that could be manga, that could be video games, it could be films, it could be music. God knows what we're going to do in that space. Um, But that's a lot of fun. So if you head over to Apple Podcasts and become one of our paid subscribers, uh, you can get access to that, as well as all of these chat returns episodes coming in a few days early and without any of the adverts as well. Uh, So do go and
2: check that out. And also we did the little thing of writing a book during lockdown. That's out in early September. It's Ghibliotech, the unofficial guide to Studio Ghibli. It's an adaptation of the podcast. We go chapter by chapter, film by film, from Nauska of the Valley of the Wind all the way to Earwig and the Witch from this year sort of mirroring the structure of the podcast I write a little bit of a production history context story behind the film and then Jake writes his review of each film one by one. It's uh, an expansion of the podcast I should say because it's been really fun going back to some of those films we covered way back when in 2018, early 2019 in the first miniseries where Jake you knew nothing about Ghibli and we had such short amount of time back then for my context that I cut so much out of the background it's great to kind of go a bit long and go a bit deeper on the films.
0: And for those of you that have been keeping track of our rankings over on Letterboxd, where we've been keeping up uh, with uh, the leaderboard and the Jacob's Ladder, uh, I did a post-book ranking where after spending a year kind of obsessively watching and writing about these films, I had to re-evaluate them. So if anyone's curious about the the current standings of uh, our Ghibli rankings, do go and check us out over there as well. That's enough of that. Uh, let's talk.
2: Peter, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's such an honour as uh, two British lads whose lives have been marked by Ardman characters from a young age. But in the process of doing Ghibliatech, whenever the people at Ghibli talk about studios they have an affinity with or studios they're influenced by, Ardman always comes up. So it would be fun to know, when did Studio Ghibli first ping on your radar?
1: That's a good first question, I mean, seriously, I think it must have been um, Spirit of the Way time, and you'll you'll know better than me when Spirit of the Way was. What, what year would that be?
2: That's 20 years ago this July that film came out.
1: That sounds about right to me. That sounds about right. I mean, so I'm not claiming um, being ahead of any curve on that. And I don't think other people at, at Ardman were either. I say that. I mean, I'd seen um, the uh, Grave of the Fireflies at festivals and stuff. Uh, long before that but I think perhaps didn't make the connection or, or to me that was just kind of an isolated movie that I happened to have seen and so I would think probably Spirit of the Way was that it was when it impinged on us seriously.
2: That is the film that introduced most of the world to Ghibli because that had this big platform that it never had before of course the record-breaking success in Japan as well so we hear about this great relationship between Ardman and Ghibli how did that come about? Did they make contact with you, or did you meet, make contact with them?
1: So, um, my memory is that they contacted us. Yes, that was—I think that was the case. By then, we did—we did know the work, of course, especially Spirit of the Way*, and it, and and thought it was, you know, the most amazing thing ever. So, when we were contacted by them, that was a pretty big deal. So, in my um, blurry memory, they contacted us, inviting us to. Put on an um, exhibition in the museum, in the Ghibli Museum, and of course that was fantastic. You know, well, that was just amazing. Um, we were <laughs> we were beyond honoured. Actually, they they'd come to the UK for Howells Moving Castle. They'd come to meet the writer, I think, who, who lived in south lives in South Wales, and uh, so that that had brought a, a group of them. To Britain, and then they visited the studio. Except Miyazaki-san didn't visit the studio, which was a great disappointment. But uh, for some reason, uh, he couldn't he couldn't make it. So that was our that was our first contact. So they said they wanted to do this exhibition. So we were delighted. We were honoured. Wow! Yes, of course. We hadn't done many exhibitions at that time. Um, we've done quite a lot since. But that, that was kind of a first. Not the, not the first, I must say, but kind of the first. So we were very excited. And the way it went is extremely amusing and very, very, very Japanese. <clears throat> so they there comes this invitation. Oh, wow. Said, yes, please. We had a guy at that time who was in charge of exhibitions. And um, so he, was, he instantly got into contact. And all the, all the technical discussions, how big is the floor space, of course? How big are the lifts to get the stuff up there and into the doors and so on and so on? Because our, our best exhibition stuff is our models, you know, three, big three-dimensional things. And um, if you get um, Wallace's basement, you know, or if you get the, um, the cabin of the pirate captain's ship, these are big things, you know. They, 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 they'll be a couple of metres long and a metre high, big things. So we went through all this process, and we looked at what we have got, the materials we've got, And we sent them a list of all the things that we thought would be in the exhibition, which, which would include as many sets as we could manage because they are, I think that everyone feels they're the high point. Some puppets, of course, some skeletons, the insides of puppets and all all this stuff and making of and um, storyboards, all the usual, all the usual stuff. So we sent this to them a little bit of to and fro. followed, And, And what, and the bottom line was that basically Miyazaki-san designed the exhibition for us it was his version of our plan in a way because he because he's got such a strong philosophical instinct himself about what we as filmmakers do and so on. anyway after some days or weeks he sent us his own hand drawn paper fold out image of how the exhibition would work it wasn't. It wasn't elaborate, but it was little, little paper cutouts of you know the things this big, and the, the walls were probably that 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 high, I guess. And this was his version of our story, and he was, in his way, very politely insistent, "This is how it would go." And and like, well, we we were we were cool with that. You know, we were very happy to fall in with that because because it was a lot stuff. You know, it was all it it was our our sets and props. The centerpiece was very amusing. But the centerpiece was a garden shed somewhere. The, the art origin story that we'd started out on the kitchen table, which is in fact true and somehow morphed into, we started out in a garden shed, which is less true, but more, but prettier. And so, so we sent the garden shed and it was full of amusing English things. I mean, obviously it's real English things, but, um, but things that we picked because they were like super British, you know, like golden syrup tins. And I don't know. And in the shed, there was a kitchen table in the shed, and this is all full-size. This is a full-size shed. And on the table, there were some little little characters, and then there was a 16mm Bolex camera on a tripod, which is all kind of true. On the wall, there hung a tandem because, yes, Dave and I had had did have a tandem for some reason at one stage. There was a tandem, and then behind the camera, instead of Dave and me, was um, a giant six foot tall Wallace cr- crouched over the camera like he was operating it. So it was like, a, it was like wow, it was like wonderfully mysterious and surreal. I think that Wallace is still lying around the studio somewhere. That big because there was a big Wallace, there was a big Feathers McGraw, there was a big Morph. Um, I mean, all sort of kind of you know, like, uh a couple of metres high, or more yeah, more, more, more for sort of person size. And, and and to say it wasn't just about things. I said it was about philosophy. Uh, Miyazaki-san was very interested in the idea that we were two schoolboys, which we were when we started, uh, and that, um, we'd, <laughs> that we'd gone to the bank and they hadn't lent us any money, which was true, which was true. And he'd picked up this story from somewhere, and he liked that. I think he liked the fact that we hadn't like, that we weren't in any sense in the pocket of financier or anything like that. So that was what happened then. So this exhibition appeared that was honestly kind of, it was like Miyazaki's version of, of us, I think is what, it, is what it was. There was a comic strip with it that we had done, which, which was our life to then, and now this was how long ago was this? this is 15 years ago I guess. This, this. So our life to that point, uh, sort of dramatised with amusing caricatures of me and Dave and Nick and Golly, people there! So that was that. So that was great, and then, and then of course we got to go to it, which was fantastic.
0: That museum is just such a a shrine, not just to Ghibli, but just to animation as a craft.
2: Yeah, so we went out to the museum November 2019, and the exhibition at that point was almost a greatest hits looking behind the scenes of all the previous exhibitions. So there was one little section which had some of those sketches and we were so sort of <laughs> baffled and excited about seeing Ardman characters almost drawn in that hand sketch Ghibli style in a way. And just wondered what what were they doing, and that is a really fascinating way of putting it. That almost the the museum exhibition is Miyazaki adapting your origin story and your characters to fit his his imagination. So when you went out there and saw it in the flesh, because the other the other aspect that always intrigues us when we were out in Japan, we saw you're going into Tower Records, going into the DVD section, finding Shaun the Sheep on DVD on a Ghibli label. Almost reframes our view of Ardman in a way, because it's been such a part of the firmament of British culture, you know, for our entire life. Adverts, music videos, telly, you know, I've got a two year old now and he's watching Timmy Time on CBeebies. We get Ardman from birth. So seeing it through a different culture's eyes, what was it like then going to the museum and seeing Ardman through a different culture's eyes? What were they picking up?
1: In the case of Wallace and Gromit, the distortion of those characters, because you know, because Wallace particularly sometimes almost alarmingly distorted, you know, with his, with his great big wide mouth and, and these st- st- mad staring eyes. And although, you know, I can't imagine any Japanese artist coming up with that, it seemed to really click. I mean, it just seemed to work for them. And and Sean the Sheep, I mean, I suppose I'm saying that the, the, the design pleased the Japanese eye or something as simple as that, you know. It's funny with uh, Sean because something not now connected with Ghibli. but Sean's is continues to be you know pretty popular in Japan. In fact, all the best merchandise is Japanese. You know, absolutely, all the stuff that turns up at work, strange cases, full of lovely stuff. It's always Japanese, and um, we have agents out there now, and they set up. A, there's a small short Sean Sheep Land, not very far from Kyoto, um, which is most most extraordinary. It's it's so hilariously extraordinary. Wow. You, it's a beautiful place. It's called Rosa and Berry, and and uh, there's a big English garden. They are very Anglophile. They have, an, of all things, an English garden. You know, like Japanese gardens to us are so amazingly beautiful and spiritual. But this is all full of hollyhocks and roses and, and stuff like that. English garden. And then you get on the train and you wind up the hillside on the train. And at a certain stage, there is the farm, the farm, the farmhouse from Shaun the Sheep. Perfectly recreated, but full size. It's just absolutely, absolutely amazing. And it, but it sits, but you know it's quite. I don't know much about geography, but um it's fairly, far, it's fairly south. You know, it's a very, it's extremely warm, warm and humid. So the so the forests <coughs> have the general look of sort of bamboo jungle almost. You know, and there in front of me is this Yorkshire farmhouse, stood there surrounded by surrounded by sheep. That's very good. So yeah, they do. They seem to work anyway. But when we were when we we're at Ghibli, I mean, I mean the museum made a huge impact and the little here's a little detail that i remember which is quite hard to describe um we were, we were shown around by by miyazaki san and that was a great that was fantastic and um there's a uh a theater there where they show cartoons outside the theater as a kind of a, wait, a waiting area before you go in and there the floor is not perfectly flat it's it's like it's like a beaten earth floor and it and it runs up and where it joins the wall, it doesn't join as a right angle, it slopes up. And Miyazaki went and just lightly skipped up and stood on the slope to demonstrate the importance of a not-flat floor to him. So philosophically speaking, it was, it, was, it was good for you to, to stand on erratic sloping floors, and, and, which is why that was there, and why outside there's, a, if you remember, a very delightful pump. So that kids can play with water at that time. This is so. This is 15 years ago. He was talking about building a preschool place for 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 the workers at the studio. I don't know if it ever happened. He said, "Yeah, it would have this. It would have it would have sand floors. It would have it would have grass, and the kids could play with sticks and stones and water and fire." He said. So I thought, well, that's that's good. Yeah, that's good for. Good for the old three-year-olds to be a, to be out uh, there playing with fire, you know? but um, but uh, but yeah, it's, I I was I'm so impressed with all that stuff because he cared so much about he he had this vision of I guess his childhood and what childhood could and should be, and when you're in the middle of Tokyo, you have know, such an incredibly urban place. He would have made this little um, o- oasis of childhood. Yeah, it
0: is an an amazing building, and I mean, we we can't wait for when the the Ghibli theme park opens next year and how that that will take it to an extreme
2: new level and it, it is fascinating how Miyazaki does have that philosophy as you say that vision and I hadn't realized how much that had seeped into the thinking around the exhibition and maybe his love of Aardman being growing out of the you say those the organic slopes of the way the museum's made the tactile nature of how he wants to engage the young imagination that's all there in the stop frame animation of hardman uh, you, you as you're watching it you're 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 what you're, you're watching something that has been handmade slavish, slavish you're slaved over for many 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 hours months years uh, so i guess i guess that's what is quite delightful to ghibli who are champions of handcrafted art
1: yes of course yeah that makes of course that, that's so fun so fundamental isn't it yes because in a world where almost all animation is cg they still you know, do this amazing um, hand-drawn thing, which is which is fantastic. But we, I think, are absolute champions of of, of the handmade. You know, believe and believers in the handmade. You know, it's all about human contact. Actually, the the contact of the model makers, the, the puppet makers, you know, the the animators. To me, what we do is magic in a way that CG will never be magic. Because because when you see an art man film, you can um, you can understand two different things at the same time. And you can, one is, the first thing, of course, the most important thing is you understand the story and the characters. That's the most important thing, that you care about the characters, you're absorbed by the story, amused by the jokes and so on and so on. Um, but at the same time, as you're feeling all those things and believing the characters, at the same time, you know you're watching puppets miraculously come to life. And that's great. That's fantastic. And by the way, that's why... Um, that's why people love things like the muppets you know because it's the same thing you know it's just a piece of felt being being manipulated by hand but you but you believe it as well at the same time that's that's to me that's true magic
0: just going back to that word tactility uh thinking about ghibli's films it's not actually miyazaki who i think of as kind of representing that tactility on screen it's more isao takahata and particularly his later works where you can see the brush strokes and the charcoal and the lines actually on the screen in the films beyond the miyazaki films were there other um studio Ghibli films that after that you once you had seen spirited away that you kind of begun to explore into the rest of the filmography and realised what other gems were there.
1: Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, I was lucky enough, um, very fortunate, to go to a festival in Italy called Castelliani which sadly doesn't exist anymore. It was in a little town south of um, Rome. And the other guest when I was there was was Takahada. So we were, we were there together. So um, I can't say that we sat and chatted very much because it's difficult. It's difficult in translation. You know, it's, you know, however we did have conversations. Of course we did. And I got the chance to see his work there. That was, that was the great thing for me. And I I was so impressed with him. I mean, I saw that film only yesterday, only yesterday, which is, which is um, sort of a story about growing up and sort of quite, as it were, quite like white live action, really. But, but, Beautifully done, and very, very moving. You know, incredibly moving. And like Miyazaki, that same fabulous recreation of of the everyday, which is which is one of the things I love most, actually. So I was very impressed with that. And then I was hugely impressed with um, uh, my neighbours, the Yamadas, which is um, completely different in style, isn't it? It's based, it's based on a newspaper strip. Um, I, I understand it's like a. Sort of a three panel strip I, I believe so to take that and blow it up into a feature length thing is itself an amazing achievement of filmmaking i think and it made made me laugh i thought it was really 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 funny and charming
0: it's really interesting that film that film is consistently picked on this podcast
1: by animators oh good good because like, i loved it i really it really struck me you know and uh I can't. I can't remember what oh, it happens, but I, do you remember? The, the, I just remember the ending. I just remember the ending when he's kind of drunken, and, drunken and singing. It was brilliant. I thought, and then the other, the other one, which I, which which was certainly eye catching, was the weird one about raccoons, and that was just like a dream vision, a dream vision of weirdness of of of, of Japanese folk characters, mythological characters, all tumbled in together, a bit like as in. Spirit of the way, well, there's
2: something about the Pom characters because they have the magic to transform that is a bit like morph in a way it's it, it's a stretching and changing shape at their own will.
1: yeah, maybe that was it <laughs> i i do I also remember I do remember at um so Takahada was very um polite sort of contained you know the guy that ran the festival was called Luca Luca Raffaelli. And he's a charmer, a charmer, but a mad loon, a mad loon, and it, and and he'd come rushing into the cinema, and say, hey, you know, one tutti and then and, and, and just start talking, and um, and spontaneously, if you happen to be stupidly sitting in the audience, he'd call you out just on the spontaneously to come and say something about a film you knew nothing about. This kind of thing. just very very shambolic, and I don't think that kind of really quite was into this dangerous, unreliable um, nonsense. And, and uh, it, was all, it was held in a, a collapsing cinema, which was hilariously called the Modernissimo, which it was not, and, uh, uh, which sadly is gone now, sadly. And so there was, he, Luca had, had organised that, we'd, we'd, because I was there and Takahata was there, we both directed feature films, that we could just have a, an hour's talk about directing feature films. You know, come and look you guys you guys come in and have an hour's conversation about directing feature films. So I turn up dutifully and Takahata wisely didn't turn up. He probably wasn't comfortable with his chaos. And um uh, so that, that that was great. So that left me with an hour of spontaneous talk to a to a large audience without anyone to talk to. Still it worked. It happened
2: <laughs> That is that's marvelous. So part of what I said that I enjoy with these interviews, is giving a new appreciation of some of the filmmakers and guests we have. So, as I said, we've known and loved Ardman for years. What was what? Was, what's the Italian take on Ardman? Because it seems that Japan have this sense of the philosophy, as you say. They also have an anglophilic aspect, but that sort of chaotic Italian spirit. What are they looking to Ardman for?
1: No idea. I have no idea. But but I love it. I mean, I I, I like I like it. it. It charms me. You know, I love the. The spontaneity and i like uh, spontaneity and the good food and and uh everything about it i mean so so i had some very, very happy times there um what do they like i don't know i mean chicken mum was very was very chicken mum was huge for us because because it traveled internationally so well you know um better than wallace and gromit you know like a, like in in britain i always use wallace and gromit to do if i, if I need to explain what we do i say you know like Wallace and Gromit, and they're oh no, so they, they, then people get it, and um, but around the world, Chicken Run was, was a huge hit, and so I think that was it. Happened to have gone down very well in Italy. I don't, I don't know why, precisely. So, yeah,
2: it's it's been fun preparing to talk with you, looking at that full span of the artman history. Of course, we have so many natural points of entry and points of, sort of appreciation, but the company's done so much over the years is chicken run almost the before and after point that move into features in your mind
1: it sort of is uh, you're right and yet there was so much before wasn't there but there was a massive change certainly
0: So say timings wise it almost aligns perfectly with studio ghibli and the release of spirited away and that suddenly takes them global even though they've got almost 20 years of history before it and 20 years of history after it um, but in those like i imagine what you guys were doing in in the 80s uh like some of the the short form stuff and the music video stuff something that ghibli never really did because they went straight into features like to me that's such an incredible period of creativity we wouldn't really get anymore you don't have people funding things like that for a mainstream audience
1: no i mean it was incredible it was incredible certainly the 80s in in british animation overall was absolutely incredible i mean it's you know very very fortunate times. Before that, we'd been we'd done morph for several years, and that was you know, well, I must always be proud of morph, but it, it in the eyes of the wider world, it was some it was kind of like just a kids' series, which, which really saddens saddens me that people should think that way. And then we'd done uh, a couple of, of short films. um... Notably one called Down and Out, which is done for the BBC was funded by the BBC and I mean, I think I believe the budget for the whole film was six hundred quid which wasn't wasn 't much then either really for for like a five minute film and that was really interesting but kind, but for us as a company kind of went nowhere but then channel Four came along and and they picked up on that side of our work, which was the um more independent, adult animation. That saw us through the through the 80s you know, wonderfully well. And then BBC, then BBC got into the act as well. But see, seeing Channel Four success, BBC started to commission work as well. And the BBC commissioned Wallace and Gromit. So between the so art house films and the music videos and everything, the 80s, early 90s was a very, very, extremely exciting time. Extremely exciting time. And that was great. But you're still right that somehow Chicken Mum was a turning point. Um, just the fact that the studio had a huge increase in size, and I'll say this word very, very carefully, becomes sort of industrialised. I mean, only only sort of, because I don't think we are. But still, if you're going to make a feature film, you, you have to, it can't just be, a. it's no longer just a craft activity for six chums. You know, it, you, you have to get, it gets onto semi-industrial scale.
2: Industrialization, it's not a dirty word for us, but it's um, because it's something that in the history of Ghibli, when we've discussed it, it happens around. 1990 1991 where previously they were this sort of ragtag bunch of filmmakers and animators they were hiring freelance staff maybe outsourcing but it's around them where they formalize create a studio get a real staff um Miyazaki himself the stories about how he designed the toilets himself making sure that women's toilets and men's toilets you know had different sizes or whatever but um it's a very important part of a process for a studio, particularly when you're going from the kitchen table or the garden shed to a, you know, a, a full, full, you know, full fledged studio, as Ardman did. One particular similarity between Ghibli's history and Ardman's history is, um, for Ghibli, it's before and after Totoro, when he becomes the icon for a generation and merchandise becomes a thing. It's very, it, 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 he very much bankrolls the studio, keeps them going in many ways. Whereas with Ardman, you created several characters that have been icons for generations. And I wondered, how, what goes into creating a character that kids love? What's the responsibility that comes along with that? And how does merchandising play into it? And how does that free you up to make crazy stuff?
1: I'm perfectly happy to say the fact is that it's Nick Park's style, the thing with the two, the two bug eyes touch, touching in the middle of the face and the big wide mouth, although although um Sean doesn't have a big wide mouth, except except very occasionally. Um, but uh, there's something about his graphic style which is extremely compelling. You know, it just I, you 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 just look at it and you think, well, I can't explain it and I, and I can't bottle it, but it's true, and you can't fake it either. You can't just turn it on; it just happens. I don't know. It's extraordinary. He just does he just does it? I mean, it's, it it is it is genius. It's what is, I mean, Nick is a genius, and um, I've often thought. If you look through, if you were to look through a book of cartoons from a, from in the sixties, seventies, eighties, you know of of um, newspaper cartoons, you would see endless characters with with bug eyes and big smiley mouths. That's why you know, everyone does that. But somehow, the magic of the way Nick put it together in three dimensions is very very special. So that's that's really really important. Responsibility is an, is an interesting word to use because it is a thing you associate with Ghibli. If you're going to be successful and make a big impact, there is responsibility that goes with that. to To, to treat your audience well, to treat the audience with respect, and not to not. I mean, uh, the word for merchandising and stuff, the widely used word, even in, in our band sometimes, is exploitation. You know, because it's, it's it happens to be. That's the word people use. You know, oh, you're going to exploit the characters means you're going to, you know you're going to make money out of the characters. And you've got to be very careful of that. You've got to be very very careful that that's not what you do, that you're not you know you know, like nobody oh man, would dream of exploiting Wallace and Grummer or or Sean the Sheep. But those are but those are the words that are used in the outside world. Yeah. But and, and I mean an art man now, by the way, um we go through another kind of amazing revolution which you can't see yet, but but give it like uh three or four years and people are gonna be very astonished and impressed by the different things we're doing different styles different voices
2: that, that feeds into another question what is this what is the secret to success for a long-running studio so Ghibli was very much founded on Miyazaki and Takahata and you know, we love films by other filmmakers they've you know they, they, they've fostered but they don't often stick around very long but Admin, you know I have a similar deal where it's a couple of key figures founded it, and maybe a couple of figures came in along the way. But what's the secret to keeping that that fresh? Those those voices, that talent.
1: I don't know. We've been very lucky. I mean, we've been very lucky. I mean, I think Nick and uh, Richard Starzak who's always called Golly. You know, these those were great fortunate meetings. You know, an awful lot of success is based on fortunate meetings, meeting the right the right people at the right time with the right ideas. It's funny. Well, I think I think there's always a conversation, a healthy conversation, between doing what you know the audience loves and um, doing new stuff, you know. And, and, of course, that conversation always goes, well, you're not going to find out what the audience loves unless you do it, you know. So you've got to do new stuff. And actually, we haven't, except in feature films, in the past, maybe between sort of uh, in the 2000s, we didn't do much except feature films, I suppose, we, and we didn't create many new characters. A big part of the story is is our our new best pals, the uh, the streamers, because because so, so there's a lot of money about there's a lot of money, uh, which before there wasn't. So like in the past, in say two thousand and five or something like that, if we had an idea for kids, se- a new kids series with new characters, it was unfortunately very very difficult to fund it because it's it's expensive. It's a very expensive game, uh, and so we didn't do much. You know, we 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 just did a lot of Shaun the Sheep, actually. But now that that um, streamers have come along with sort of realistic budgets, suddenly it's all possible again. So that's 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 very exciting. That's the business side. That but the business side is nothing without the creativity and the and the creativity. I think I mean for me, you, you have an instinct for people who are really good, and there aren't many of them. You know, I mean, I've mean really good, you know, special people. And the trick is, when you see them, to grab them if you possibly can. I think that's the that's probably the scene right there. I wanted to just tell you it was about interest because I think it was interesting. I went to, when we went to um, Ghibli, so we went to the museum, went to the um, studio, went to Miyazaki's personal shack across the road where he was working. And he was working on Ponyo at the time when we were there. And it was just so interesting because we, we have you been there in his inner sanctum? No.
0: So we we stood outside the uh, the office and and someone actually came out and asked us if we were lost, and we said no, no, we're, <laughs> we're quite happy to just stand here and look at the sign, and then we'll leave. We promise. <laughs> well,
1: it was, it was very it was very good inside, very very amazing, amazing, delightful place. But there was one room where there was him. Uh, and uh story artist and the layout artist and there about, about there were four of them in there i think and they were they were sort of working out Ponyo and there were all these sequences dotted about the place in the sketch form on the walls which you know it is impossible to guess what the story was about absolutely impossible just it, it, one one bonkers thing after another on the walls <laughs> and and actually that's kind of like what the film is like as well <laughs> I think you know, it's like, it's just, and, and, but it's, thats that's the way he works, I think you know he, he he just he has these ideas, stream of consciousness ideas you know and, um you know, like he got he got what- got water and fish, what do you do with water and fish this and that and this and whales and a whole whales turning into a city and and the and the drowned world and hilarious. You know, it's a Just, submarine. But I, I got this amazing sense of spontaneity which, from him somehow this spontaneity radiating out from him to affect the, the final film.
0: I can't imagine the headaches that he causes his heads of department. <laughs> yeah,
2: yep. It's always surprising for us when we speak to screenwriters who probably come from a much more sort of structured world. They still love these films, even though they're thrown together in such a spontaneous way, right up to the last minute.
1: Yes. It's so unlike the way we work. I, I, I watch it with awe and jealousy. Though no, we, we We end up working in a much more structured, a very structured way. Yeah? And, and, um, keeping that alive is the art, you know, is not not not, not suffocating the structure and you know, overthinking everything.
0: Well, we we've talked about a lot of Ardman and a lot of Ghibli, but at this point in our podcast, because we've covered all of Ghibli and we've gone on to explore Cartoon Saloon and the works of Satoshi Khan and we're kind of broadening our horizons. We'd love to ask, what do you think we should do next? Like, Who should be the next people that we explore the worlds of? Who are the animators that inspire you or that you took stuff from that you think are worth kind of getting into for an extended period of time?
1: Well, I would always say the Quay brothers, because I just think they're they're the most interesting, extraordinary guys. have done such an incredible job of of world building and have such an authentic voice. And it's extraordinary... um, Authenticity and honesty, those things that, you, that come from those guys.
2: You're the you're the first person to suggest them, and I, now you now you mention them. Of course, again, very much coming out of similar '80s spirit of experimentation.
1: Yes, I mean I, I watched them with awe and often complete incomprehension, but huge respect. You know, like it's funny that like, like like the Street of Crocodiles is a fantastic film. I think whereas I I think they probably think it's it's absurdly. Um, commercial sellout film from their point of view but still
2: perfect peter thank you so much for talking with us today it's been such an honor
1: good great nice to talk to you chaps yes i love your passion and enthusiasm for the subject that's great
2: Thank you so much to Peter Lord for talking with us for this episode. So interesting to hear about that relationship between these two great studios of animation, but also so great for us to shine a spotlight on Ardman, who really, because they're such a fixture in the furniture, almost from birth for many British people, uh, they often go overlooked. So really great to give them um, a little bit of space in the Tech to talk about their work.
0: Well, and... We're very excited about Robin Robin, which we've only just seen the first look of it, um, which is a felt animation, a new look for Ardman, And that's going to be coming later in the year. Uh, and we're both very, very excited about that. Uh, and if you want to keep up with us in the in the meantime, in between these Chat Returns episodes, you can do so on Twitter, where we are at Ghibliotech. Or if you want to email us, uh, we're ghibli at little.studios.com. And if you want to keep up with us individually, Michael's over on Twitter
2: at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham.
0: Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe, our music is by Anthony Ying, and James Payne is our editor. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill
2: and Steph Watts.